Well, we continue this morning our, our very occasional series through 1 Samuel. Uh, and we are in 1 Samuel 15. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. Uh, if you're not used to listening to sermons, you'll be helped if you have the Bible, your Bible open in front of you. Uh, you're welcome to use one of the pew Bibles uh, as I'll be sort of referencing as I go along here in 1 Samuel 15, page 237 in the blue pew Bibles in front of you. There's a book by Paul Tripp called Lost in the Middle, where he talks about the experience of a, of a midlife crisis. I read that book in my 30s. I thought it was helpful. Um, now that I'm in my 40s, it's really, really helpful. Uh, I'm experiencing the book in a whole new way. You know, one of the things that midlife does is that it begins to highlight your priorities your dreams, your ambitions in life. And one of the ways that it does that so powerfully is through the experience of regret. Um, Regrets reveal what we think our lives should be all about, which is why so many people begin to experience regret as they approach the end of their lives. You know, they, they've spent too long pursuing the wrong things. One might say, I, I, I regret having pursued that career. I should have done something else, right? I, I regret not having been better with my finances. Oh, can't get that time back. I regret spending too much time in the office, not being a better parent, not being a better husband. I regret not having taken better care of my health. For people who are experiencing a midlife crisis, uh, the emotion of regret can be powerful, consuming. I wonder if any of you have regrets that you're experiencing. I wonder what these regrets reveal about what matters to you. Now let me shift gears a little bit. What about God? Does God have any regrets? It's obviously a strange question to ask. Uh, We don't typically associate regret with God. I mean, if you're the sovereign God of the universe, what would there be to regret? And yet this morning, as we look at 1 Samuel 15, we are going to see that language being used of God. Now, we have to be careful how we interpret that. But at the same time, just as our regrets are very revealing of us, so also regrets can be very revealing of God. So whatever we see here, we want to pay careful attention. My aim this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 15, my aim is to convince you of two things. Number one, That God absolutely hates sin. And number two, that he has provided us a better king who will save us from our sin. I want to convince you of those two things this morning. That God absolutely hates sin and that he will provide a better king to save us from our sin. If there's anything that God's regret teaches us, it's those two things. 
And to convince, to help convince you of that, uh, I want us to talk about five perspectives that we need. So it's actually not a two-point sermon, it's a five-point sermon. Sorry about that. Five-point sermon. And to help you with that, hey, there it is, a visual aid. Um, we're going seeker-sensitive here. Uh, visual aid, five points. Uh, the goodness of God's commands. The disaster of disobedience. The enslavement of unrepentance. God's rejection of rebellion. Look at those alliterations. Beautiful. And number five, because of all those things, we need a better king. We need a better king. Um, yeah, feel free to leave that up. Uh, if you're in church this morning, uh, I'm guessing that you're probably aware of at least some of these things. Uh, you have an intellectual understanding that God hates sin and, and will punishment, that we need a savior. You know, it's easy to affirm those things sitting in church on a Sunday morning. But what would your Monday through Saturday life reveal about what you think of God and sin and your need of a Savior? You know, the truth is we all struggle to, to think about these things properly. So I pray that God would convince us of the weightiness of the truths, of these truths, even this morning. All right, number one, the goodness of God's commands. Look with me, 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Well, this passage here begins with Samuel bringing a message from God to Saul, the king of Israel. Israel is God's chosen nation called to represent God among the nations. And Saul is their anointed king, chosen by God himself to lead his people. And now God gives Saul a command. This is how Saul is to represent God among his people and among the nations. And to our modern ears, this command doesn't sound good at all. It sounds terrifying. Saul is to go and wipe out the people of Amalek, men and women, child and infant, all their livestock and all that they have, it says. This is to be a complete destruction of the people of Amalek. Why is this? Why is this being commanded? Is, is, is this some random act by an evil God? You know, if you think that about God's commands, obedience is impossible. No, the, this is not a random act by an evil God. But in fact, what's being commanded here is a deliberate, intentional judgment of vengeance, of punishment by a very good God. The reason for this judgment is because of the evil of the Amalekites, uh, particularly what happened uh, 300 years ago. When God had set his people free from slavery in Egypt, 
when, when this nation of former slaves had barely escaped and did not yet have an organized military, the Amalekites came along and tried to destroy them. They saw this helpless nation marching out of Egypt as an opportunity for their own enrichment. No, God had clearly judged the Egyptians and had saved Israel, had shown the world that Israel was his chosen people. And still the Amalekites went up against them. And, and they would have wiped them out had it not been for God's intervention. You can read about this in Exodus 17. Interesting, though, uh, later on in Deuteronomy 25, Moses reminds the people about what the Amalekites did. Uh, let me read Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. You can just listen. Moses says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. You know, when the Amalekites attacked, they didn't just attack the, you know, they didn't cut down and just declare war and attack the soldiers. No, they were cruel. They went after those who were lagging behind. They attacked the old, the sick, women who were pregnant, women who were with infants. And they killed. For all this, Moses now calls God's, Moses called God's people then that when the time came, they were to wipe out Amalek. And now, 300 years later, the time has come. You know, God has been patient for 300 years. God has given the Amalekites time to repent. And yet we're going to see later on in this passage, even in verse 18 and in verse 33, that the Amalekites have continued to be cruel, continued to be sinful. And so now God has appointed Saul to be the agent of his judgment, to carry out his vengeance. That phrase there that we see, um, devote to destruction, the, the Hebrew word there is actually a, a technical theological word. It's, it's not a word that's commonly used. Uh, it's not just any war that Israel is declaring. No, this is a holy war. This is war carried out on God's behalf, which reveals God's holy justice. Really what's going on here is that Israel is bringing forth in time and space a picture of that final judgment day. There is a day that's coming when God will come and he will judge all evil and all sin. And on that day, God will be absolutely impartial. No one will be exempt from his judgment. Men and women, kings and servants, educated and simple, every tribe, tongue, and nation, all sinners will be judged. And everything in this world that has been tainted by evil and sin will be destroyed. And this world will be made new. That day is coming. And yet here, this is meant to be a foreshadowing of that day. A, a proleptic instance of that day as a warning to the world of the judgment to come. I mean, if you're, in, if you're in Saul's shoes, what fear should grip you as you hear this command, right? To carry out God's judgment, knowing that at the same time, you are a sinner deserving of that same judgment. Even as he sought to obey God's commands 
and carried out that destruction, he should have known this is what he himself deserves, if not for the grace of God. This is what the holy God was commanding of Saul. You know, as jarring as God's commands may sound to our ears, we affirm that all of God's commands are good. It is good that God is patient with sinners. It is good that God promises one day to judge sinners. All of God's commands are good because God is all good. And unless we're convinced by that, we're not going to obey him. Let me just be very clear here. Does God command holy war today? No. As I said earlier, the, the holy wars that we see in the Old Testament looked forward to that final judgment day. God has already made it clear through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that Jesus is the anointed king who will carry out that final judgment. Since God has already revealed his anointed king, no group here on earth today is ever commanded to carry out this kind of violence against any other group of people. Anyone who claims that God told them to wipe out other people, they are lying. They are self-deceived, and they will be held accountable for their evil, just as the Amalekites were. And yet, I should also say, if you think that the truth that there is a God who judges and destroys sinners, if you think that that's too cruel, may I suggest that the only reason you think that is because you're probably too sheltered? Um, If the worst evil you can think about this world is that there are people who don't recycle and there are people who are rude to others on on social media, then sure, I can understand why you think that maybe this is a little extreme. But if, in fact, you open your eyes to the reality of the atrocities that we are surrounded by every day, the genocides that do go on, the, the trafficking of women, the murder of children, the oppression of the poor, the corruption of those in power, and all the ways we are so deeply entangled in these things, then you'll, if you believe that, then you'll understand that our only hope is in a God who will one day judge evil and judge it perfectly. The fact that there is a God who judges evil means that we have hope. We have to believe that all of God's commands are good. That God himself is good. That doesn't mean we'll always understand God's ways perfectly. There will be times when God's commands seem to you more like death rather than life. There will be times where you will have to obey by faith. But it's in those moments that our faith clings to our confidence that God is good. And if God has spoken it in his word then his commands must be the ultimate way of our flourishing, of our good. Despite what Hollywood says, despite what your boss says, despite what your loved ones say. So perhaps there is some command of God in your life that you're just not sure about whether or not you should obey it. You know, maybe you're wondering, did God really say that? Maybe this is just a holdover from, you know, 1950s tradition here in America. Not sure if God really said that. All right, so granting that uncertainty, here's the question for you. If in your conscience you become actually convinced 
that it's not just a holdover from tradition, but actually, in fact, God and his word has given you that command. If you became convinced of that, and, and others in your life see that, affirm that, then are you committed to obeying it no matter what, no matter how painful it is? If not, then what does that say about your view of God? Right? Could it be then, if you refuse to obey God, that actually your obedience is resting on your sense of right and wrong rather than your trusting in God? If we believe that God is good, then we must believe that his commands are good. And therefore, we would want to run to obey everything he says to us. It's only when we see the goodness of God, the goodness of all his commands, then, that then we are ready to see the disaster, number two, of our disobedience. The disaster of disobedience. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But, Paul, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. The commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, writes this. Samuel certainly viewed this last disobedience as a major disaster for both Saul and Israel. Otherwise, why be so upset? You know, it's striking here how upset Samuel is. After all, everything seemed to go well. Saul mustered the troops. Israel was united behind their king. You know, it's clear that Saul understands what's going on. He, he knows this is holy war. He warns the Kenites, hey, come out from among the Amalekites. If you stay among them, you're going to be swept away also. Everything is going to be destroyed. And so the Kenites fled. And then in verse 7, we see that Saul wins a resounding victory over the Amalekites. And yet, in verse 8 and following, we see that instead of obeying God's commands, Saul takes Agag, the king, alive. And Saul and the people take the best of the livestock and all that was good, all the plunder. And only then do they devote to destruction everything else. In other words, this is not holy war anymore. This is not a picture of God's judgment. No, this is Saul leading his people to plunder another nation, 
and to slaughter innocent civilians. This is Saul compromising with a foreign king, a king under God's wrath, in order to keep him alive as a spoil of war, to the praise of his own power. Saul did not conduct this war in the fear of God. No, he conducted this war for his own glory, for his own advantage. Whatever the people did, Saul was their leader, and Saul approved. Saul failed to carry out God's commands. In fact, this victory was an absolute disaster. Absolute disaster. In the book of Joshua, the city of Jericho is also under devoted to destruction. One of the soldiers, you will remember in that story, steals some of the loot and hides it in his tent. And as a result, because that loot is among the people of God, all the people are under the wrath of God. And as the people go out to their next battle, they are judged and they lose and hundreds of people die. It's not until that soldier and that loot is destroyed that Israel is restored to God. Why? Because God's judgment is impartial. God's judgment is absolute. And now the Amalekite king and their treasures and their livestock are scattered throughout Israel's camp. Samuel knows this can only mean disaster for Israel. This is why he's so distraught. This is why he's so upset. What is that going to mean for Saul, the disobedient king? What is that going to mean for Israel under the wrath of God? Disobedience is disaster. If you have ever disobeyed God's commands, or if you live under leaders who disobey God's commands, then Samuel's tears should be your tears. And yet Samuel's emotion is not even the most striking thing about this passage. No, the most striking thing here is what we read of God. Verse 11, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. You know, there are not many passages like this in the Bible. Every time they appear, we need to pause and reflect what's going on. They are telling us something profound about God. Uh, this passage reminds me of Genesis 6-5. There we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. You know, this language is so striking precisely because we know from the rest of Scripture that God is sovereign, that God is all-powerful, that he is totally in control, that he is unchanging, that he is the happiest God that there could ever be, that he is blessed, that he will one day judge the world of evil. And yet at the same time, we see here that evil in this world grieves him, that God somehow regrets the evil that he ordains. How can this be? You know, some modern theologians have taken verses like this to mean, well, well God regrets because God doesn't know all things. 
He is not in control of this world. No, God is just as vulnerable and risk-prone as we are. And sometimes God messes up. Sometimes God makes the wrong choice. You know, these modern theologians think that if we have a God like that, then that's actually pretty good, that, that we have a God who can sympathize with us, a God who understands our troubles, that explains why there's evil in this world, because, because God is not really in charge. Friends, I just want to say, if, if that is what God is really like, imperfect and fallible and clueless and impotent, then that's not a God we want to worship, right? That, that is a God that is no different than you and I, and he is unable to save anyone. That is not the God of the Bible. The Bible is clear that God is sovereign, all good, all knowing, eternal, utterly perfect and complete and sufficient in himself. So what's going on here in the language about regret is not something about God's essence of who he is, about his perfections, his eternal nature. No, rather, it is revealing to us something about the way God interacts with his creation, the way God stoops to interact with us. The Bible is full of language that describes God in, in human language. The Bible talks about God's, God's eyes and arms and mouth, even though the Bible teaches, and as the children's catechism puts it, God is spirit and does not have a body like men. But these images also help us to understand something about how God interacts with us. In the same way, the Bible can talk about God interacting with us with human emotions. And so we see that God laughs, that God becomes angry, that God grieves, and even that God regrets. But we should not think that in doing so, that God is doing those things in the way that we do them. No, God is rather in these things. He is stooping down to help us learn something about him. And what is it that we learn about God here? We learn that God is absolutely committed to destroying sin. That God hates sin and that he will destroy it. God's regret here is a powerful reminder of how much God despises human evil, human violence, motivated by greed and power rather than by his justice. And because God loves us, when we choose to side with sin rather than him, God grieves over our sin. Though God rules over even the free, responsible, sinful acts of man, God is not unfeeling about our sin. No, God hates sin. And he is committed to doing something about it. What about us? You know, so often when we regret sin, we actually are regretting the consequences of sin. When was the last time you regretted sin for sin itself? When was the last time you were filled with pain at the dishonor, the blasphemy that you've brought onto God and the evil that you've committed? Friends, we need to see that the disaster of disobedience is not merely for the terrible results that it brings onto our lives, but actually for what the sin itself is. You know, at this point in the story, the, the terrible results haven't been revealed yet. Saul is celebrating. Israel is having a grand old time. Disobedience sure seemed like a good idea. 
There will be times in your life when the consequences of sins will not be immediately obvious. And they may not be obvious even to your death. It may feel like sin is the right choice, leading to life and happiness. But in that moment, what you need is someone like Samuel, who sees things clearly, who is filled with anger and indignation over the sin itself, and who cries out to God over it. Point number three, the enslavement of unrepentance. We see in verse 12 that Samuel goes looking for Saul. Turns out Saul has been busy celebrating. He's built a monument to himself, raised a big old statue to celebrate himself. And now he's gone on to Gilgal. Gilgal is the religious center of Israel. And there the people are offering sacrifices, thanksgiving sacrifices to God. Thank you, God, for this wonderful victory, they're saying. And they're having a big feast in honor of God. Let's pick up in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, Oh, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the, of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. No, it's amazing here how blind Saul is to his own sin, right? I mean, Samuel is just like incredulous. He's like, why didn't you obey the command of the Lord? And Saul is like, yeah, no, I did. I did obey. And, and, and like literally he's like surrounded by all these animals. He's like, I imagine him like holding a fattened calf at that moment, you know, wearing like an Amalekite robe. He's like, I, I did obey. What are you talking about? You know, Saul tries to justify himself in verse 15. And Samuel just says, stop, stop, just shut up. You know, sometimes the best thing we can do is just close our mouths. And listen. Stop making excuses. Verse 17, we see God's powerful confrontation against our sin. Samuel reminds Saul how gracious God was to him. Saul used to be a nobody, and yet God made him king over the people. And now as God's anointed king, God gave him this clear, unmistakable command. Destroy the Amalekites. And yet instead of obeying, Saul pounced on the spoil. And yet, how does Saul respond? Verses 21, 20 to 21. I did obey. Look, okay, I spared Agag, but, but I destroyed everything else. And look, it's the people's fault. They took the spoil. They took the plunder. But look, we're using it to offer sacrifices, so it's okay. 
You know, Saul is captive to his own sin. He is unrepentant. If you're making excuses to justify your sin, that is a tip, that should tip you off that you have not yet repented, that you are still enslaved to your sin. I wonder if you see anything familiar in your life from Saul's response. Um, How do you know you're being deceived by your own sin? You know, the problem with being deceived by your own sin is that you don't know when you're being deceived. That's the whole point of being deceived, right? And if you're the one doing the deceiving, how do you know you're being deceived? Well, at least here are some clues, okay? If you're doing any of this in order to excuse your sin, you are self-deceived. Number one, if you ever appeal to partial obedience, right? This is what Saul does. Uh, I have obeyed. Look at how much I destroyed. Partial obedience. Friends, partial obedience is disobedience, right? Uh, If God is God, then we don't have a right to sort of reinterpret his commands. As we taught our kids when they were little, obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart, right? That's obedience. All the way, right away, with a happy heart. Because partial obedience is not true obedience, so, you know, so you're, if you're avoiding pornography, that's good. But what other movies or what other, other videos are you allowing yourself to watch? Right? What other things are you tolerating? All right, number two, uh, another excuse tactic, blame shifting. Blame shifting. Saul says, it was the people who took the spoil. You know, it's not, I, I really didn't have a choice. It's their fault. Friends, we have no shortage of other people to blame for the troubles in our life, right? I I wouldn't drink so much if my spouse just showed me some respect. I wouldn't get so angry if these kids would just stop misbehaving. If only my boss would pay me more than maybe I would give to the church. If only I hadn't been hurt by other Christians in the past, then I would get more serious about my religion. Friends, I understand that we live in a world where people sin against us. But you are not captive to your circumstances. Even when people sin against you, you have agency. And you have the ability and the responsibility to respond wisely and righteously to other people's sin. Blame shifting will not work before the throne of God. And finally, one more tactic that we see here from Saul. He appeals to religious performance, right? Okay, okay, I disobeyed, but, but still, look at all these sacrifices we're offering. What, you know, surely it's okay, right? We stole, I mean, sacrifices. Have you ever excused your sin because of all that you were doing for God? I recently heard of a pastor who was found out, even though he was a senior pastor, to have been carrying on in an affair in the church, for several years. And the congregation was shocked. The elders were shocked. The elders asked him. Obviously, they, they disciplined him. But, but his friends asked him, like, what were you thinking to do that? And his, one of his answers was, you know, I, I was doing all these things for God. The church seemed to be doing well. I was busy serving. And I thought, surely God would forgive my sin. 
Right? Surely the gospel could be true for me, and therefore it's okay. Friend, religious performance can be a good thing, but it is no substitute for obedience to God. For, for those of you who are officers in the church, for those of you who aspire to, to ministry, beware, right? Don't be deceived. God does not show favoritism when it comes to holiness. If you are not fighting for holiness and for obedience in your life, then you have no business leading God's people. And this is something that all Christians need to hear. Don't think that being a member of a church, that giving to the church, that being baptized by being involved in ministry, don't think that any of these things will excuse your disobedience. No, if anything, living in unrepentant sin will simply prove that all of your religious performance is a charade. You know, as we watch Saul make up excuse after excuse, even after having been so clearly confronted with this disobedience, like, we should all just tremble. We should all just fear because it is a picture of the enslavement of sin, of unrepentance. It's, and it's a voluntary enslavement. Right? How do you free a captive when he loves his captivity? In other words, don't think that repentance is easy. It's hard to turn away from sin. Like we know this. We know how easily our hearts love our sin. We know how easily we can fool ourselves about our repentance. No, in fact, repentance takes a miracle. It takes what the Bible call, calls being born again. It takes what the Bible describes as receiving a brand new heart by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong. The church is helpful. Christian friends are helpful. We need Samuels in our lives to confront us. But true repentance is a gift from God. Nobody can do that for you. Left to ourselves, we will fool ourselves all day long. And we may even fool the people around us. God must come and change our hearts. Which means, friends, if, if you ever experience the smallest spark of conviction over your sin, don't ignore it. No, no realize what a precious gift that is and, and cling to it. Do something about it. There's no guarantee that you will care about your sin in some future point in your life. No, right there, if God is convicting you of sin, then your first order of business is to cry out to God to pray for his help, to beg him not to give you over to that sin and leave you in your unrepentance. No, pray for his mercy in Jesus Christ and then resolve to take practical steps of repentance in your life. Talk to someone about that. Even this afternoon, confess your sin to a friend. Be held accountable. Do something about it because the last thing you want is to be enslaved to unrepentance. Well, Samuel has confronted, Saul has rejected, and now Samuel will pronounce God's judgment. Point number four, God's rejection of rebellion. Look at verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as, as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So here is God's response to Saul's sin and unrepentance. Question, does God take delight in our religious performance as much as he does our obedience? Answer, no. No, obedience is better than sacrifice. Relatively speaking, our religious performance can only be accepted in the context of a life marked by obedience to God. Why is that? Well, because as we see here, for rebellion is like divination. Rebellion is like not listening to God, but listening to the dead. And arrogant presumption is like idolatry. It's like not listening to God, but instead listening to demons. In other words, when we rebel, we are not just rejecting God's voice. No, we are turning our ears to listen to the voice of the dead and listening to the voice of demons. We are following and obeying the voice of Satan. What good are our sacrifices then? Therefore, because Saul has rejected God's word, God will reject Saul from being king. Saul will no longer have the privilege of representing God and leading God's people. But now all of that will be taken away. In verses 24 through 30, we, we're gonna, we see Saul's response. He says, I have sinned. He expresses repentance. But actually, if you read this, I don't think he's being sincere. I don't think he's really repenting. For one, if you only repent after you're caught and after the sentence has been doled out, that's not a good sign of the genuineness of your repentance, right? Far better for repentance, uh, sort of an encouraging sign of true repentance is when a person confesses his sin on his own and comes clean even before he's caught. But second, really when you read Saul's words here, it seems that Saul's concern is less about God and more about his reputation. I mean, when you look at verse 30, he says, I have sinned, and yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. You know, he, he's concerned. He's probably thinking about the fact that the people are watching him have an argument with Samuel. And Saul is concerned that now the people hear that Samuel has rejected him. And so he wants Samuel to come back with him. And therefore, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. No, I don't think Saul is really repentant. I think Saul is still enslaved to his sin. And therefore, God has rejected him. Friend, let me say it again. Saul's condition is our condition. Saul is a picture of us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Though God made us in his image, though he crowned us the head of his creation, though he gave us all that we have, we, like Saul, have rebelled against him. We have listened to the voices of demons rather than his voice. We disobeyed the law that is written upon our hearts. We disobeyed the law that is given to us in his word. There's no getting around it. We have disobeyed God's words. And whatever excuses we offer, 
they all fall flat. Like Saul, we just keep talking and talking and talking. And in the meantime, all around us, evidences of our disobedience are obvious. The day is coming when our mouths will be shut and the whole world will be held accountable to God. For our sins, we are no longer fit to represent God. Our sins lie about the God who made us. For our sins, we no longer deserve to be with God. Just as Samuel turned to walk away from Saul, so God turns away from sinners. And the day will come when he will turn away forever. Oh, friends, to lose God is to lose our highest joys, our highest privileges, all that we were created for. When we lose God because of our sin, we forfeit all that we long for. Talk about regret. On that day, sinners will be filled with unbearable regret. If this was the end of the story, we would be hopeless. But look at verse 28. Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Even in judgment, God speaks a word of hope. That's right. The glory of Israel will not lie. We see that in verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. No, he will, he, God will not waver in his purposes. Even with the absolute debacle that Saul is, God will yet be faithful to his promises. There will be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through Israel. There will be a king better than Saul. And that brings us to the final point. We need a better king. And we really see that in the final section. At this point, we don't, see, we don't know who this better king, this neighbor is going to be. Perhaps Samuel here shows us something of what the king will be like. You know, in verse 30, Saul begs Samuel to come back with him to bow before the Lord. Samuel goes, but I, I imagine Samuel just standing there next to Saul while Saul is bowing. Samuel is just like looking straight ahead, like refusing to participate in that. Then in verse 32, Samuel says, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Malachites. And Agag comes and Samuel says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among, among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. The consequences of Saul's disobedience will plague Israel for a long time. The Amalekites would continue to be enemies of Israel, even up to the time of Esther, when Haman, the Agagite, tries to wipe out the, the entire nation. But here, Samuel does what Saul should have done. This is what repentance should have looked like for Saul. It means taking forceful action against all sin. It means waging war against all sin. And oh, friends, how desperately we need a king who will do just that. Saul was concerned about how people viewed him, but in fact, he cared very little for them. All he cared about was his own power. You know, in so many ways, Saul represents the leaders of this world, the wisdom of this world. How desperately we long for a better king, a king who will obey God like Samuel. 
In verse 28, God promises a better king, and yet the amazing message of Christianity is that this better king has come. 2,000 years ago, through the line of David, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was born. He didn't look like a king. No, he was the son of a carpenter. And yet he was the promised king of old. Unlike all of us, Jesus perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. Every command, every law, every requirement, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the good will of his heavenly father. He never once sided with greed, with lust, with injustice, with dishonesty, with hatred. No, no, for every single command of God, Jesus obeyed all the way, right away, with a happy heart. And God, the Father, infinitely delighted in his Son. He delighted in him far more than all of our theatrical religious performances. But then Jesus, the obedient king, does something very strange. Having obeyed God perfectly, he then goes and offers a sacrifice. Finally, a sacrifice that really counts. And yet it was not the blood of illegitimate bulls and goats. No, he offered the sacrifice of his own perfect life. Such a strange sight. You see there the, per the perfect, beloved Jesus hanging on a cross, cursed by men, seemingly rejected by God. There on the cross, once again, Judgment Day was brought forward in history. The sky grew dark. The earth quaked. Jesus cries out and the skies are silent. There on the cross, Judgment Day falls on Jesus. The wrath of God against the sins of man. And Jesus dies in our place. But friends, even... In bearing the wrath of God, Jesus was perfectly obeying his heavenly Father. And on the third day, Jesus receives his reward. God raises his son from the dead in triumph, having fully paid the punishment of our sin. And Jesus ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. Today, Jesus, the better king, holds out forgiveness for all those who will Stop making excuses and place their trust in him. For all of you who will turn away from your sins, confess your need of a savior and place your trust in Jesus, he will receive you. He will forgive you of all your sins. He will represent you before the heavenly father. He will take your sins upon himself and count them as fully paid. And he will give to you a gift of his perfect righteousness. And then he will give you that new heart that you need so that you can begin following him in repentance and faith. If you know yourself to be a sinner here this morning, I have the best news in the world for you. The glory of Israel is not a man that he should lie or have regret. No, he said he would bring us a better king and he has done it. He has done it in Jesus Christ. He is the king that we need who conquers our worst enemies of sin and death. And he has done it. And now the decision is yours. Will you then walk away from him and remain in the enslavement of your sin? 
and regret that decision for all of eternity? Or will you repent, place your trust in God's better king, and enter into the joy of his everlasting kingdom? Let's pray together. And even before I lead us in prayer, take a moment now to respond to God in your own words and what you've heard. And then in a moment, I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess how we confess the weakness of our hearts, the deadness of our hearts, the unrepentance of our hearts that so often plagues us. Lord, we confess that our only hope is you. Oh, Lord, we see in Saul a picture of, our, of ourselves. Oh, Lord, how we need a better king, how we need a savior. And Lord, how you have provided exactly what we need in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to believe deeply the trouble that we're in because of our sin. But Lord, help us to believe even more deeply the all-sufficient Savior that we have in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let's stand and let's sing.